Good evening. I was inspired by Will's talk last night to share this brief, um, you could say it, um, this brief passage that uh, was passed on to me. And since he began last evening with the concept of time, I thought this might be appropriate. The past, the present, and the future walked into a bar. It was tense. (laughs) It was uh, so lovely the way uh, Will described how a simple moment of experience, how a, a tiny unit of experience, how how easily depending on whether that experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant, how it sparks a a, um, creation, a creation of the the concept of time. And uh, how when something is, for example, unpleasant, uh, the perception is that something is unpleasant, and then it turns our um, our imagined world into uh, a projection of some kind of unpleasant future. And if it's pleasant, it's uh, associated with some kind of pleasant uh, imagery. And in both cases, and or in the case of even with a neutral experience, that little moment, that simple moment, that unit of experience unnoticed, we enter into the world of, uh, I call it the world of the imagined me. Because always in that little story of time, that little story of the future, and whether it's going to be, whether it's too long, or whether it's too short, or whether it's, it is, it is all about all about, and, and Will alluded to this a lot last night, it's all about me. But it's not just about the you that sits here, that is so, um, sits here in vivid, living color, that unique expression of life that each of you are, right now. Unable to be, because of all the myriad influences that brought you to this moment, mostly non-personal, all of the, just thinking of, of the elements that made your body, earth, air, fire, and water, is that personal? And all the parental voices, and all the cultural voices, everything that brought, came together, and all the conditions that had to happen for you to be here. You have emerged here, in a, uh, in a unique way. And that uh, unique expression that's here, and whatever its felt experience, is uh, not so easy to put in words. I think we played with it a little the first night. What can you say about yourself in that simple unit of, of, of time? That simple, just as we are here. What or who are you right now if you don't consult your memory? What do you experience almost instantaneously when you simply stay with, there may be a feeling tone right now of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. But if, if you simply stay here for a moment and base what and who you are on immediate and present evidence. In other words, on reality. What or who are you right now? What can you say? Anybody willing to try? What happens 
What do, you, what do you experience? We'll put it this way. What do you experience after your last story about yourself has passed and before the next one comes? Somebody's got it. Compilation. And what is that in real time? What's that experience right now? No, I mean really right now, yeah. What, weird? Weird. Awareness, yes. What else? Breath. Sensation. Here. So where is the sufferer here and now? (laughs) As one of my teachers, a teacher named H.W.L. Punja, put it, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. So what we, what we miss, often miss, in this, in, by missing the simplicity of the present moment is we miss what is most natural to us, which is freedom. You need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. He goes on to say, the boulders of the past rest on your chest and inhibit your life and your freedom. Says, you have to look at the origin of these ideas, these thoughts. And he doesn't mean look at the origin of these thoughts in the historic past, because that just is more, is more past. And we can certainly learn a lot by reflecting on our histories. And it, a lot of compassion can come when we realize all the forces that brought us to this point, the, the traumas and the cultural differences and the racial differences and all the things that have have formed us like the, like the way that sand is formed in time, like the way the mountains are formed. We've all been formed in that same way and we can reflect on that. But when he says look into the origin of these thoughts, you need the thoughts, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and inhibit your life and freedom. Find the origin of these I thoughts. And so he's asking in this quote, the very thing that we do moment to moment is to see the nature of these I thoughts in real time, how they work. So today we introduced thinking, the thinking mind. When you for a moment are free of the last thought and before the next, can you find any I, me, or mine? All you can find is what people describe, sensation, awareness. Often I'll ask the question, people say, peace, awareness. Sometimes there's a sense of freedom. So we don't appreciate that freedom, natural freedom, natural awareness is in plain view. And it is due to these simple little experiences, these units of experience that Will spoke about last night, that unnoticed spawn or spark a... Um, a, a, um, a fantasy. 
when that experience is pleasant, what happens? So I'm breaking this down a little bit more just because we talked about elaborating on some of what Will spoke about. He spoke beautifully about where we go in how we create time, but how does that happen moment to moment? And this is what we can discover meditatively that we can't so easily see in our daily life. But once you see it a little bit here, you'll be able to see it more in your daily life. There's a pleasant experience, a, a, an experience that comes. We experience it as pleasant. It may be a sound, it may be a smell, a taste, a, a sensation, a feeling in our body, uh, an emotion. It may be a thought. And it arises, and it could be that person on the retreat that, that you often see who produces in you a, a pleasant feeling. You see somebody that you kind of like. So that moment of pleasure that you experience in seeing that person on the retreat is quickly followed by, especially if we don't notice it, it's quickly followed by liking. I like this. And liking, and that as soon as there's liking in our mind, we, may, we don't usually notice this so very carefully, and we can on retreat. Liking w- creates a little bit of a charge. And liking, that charge, then moves very quickly into, what does it move into when we like something? We want something. And that want, as I was describing the other night, that unnoticed creates a little internal pressure. And that pressure has to relieve some, release somewhere. So where does it release? It releases in a fantasy. A fantasy of how I am going to date that person, mate that person, marry that person, travel the world with that person, There's a beautiful example by a poet named George Bilger, if I can find it here, of that simple process. And he, he's noticed what his mind does. And maybe, that you, maybe you noticed how your mind has done this too. And he put it to, into poetry. So here's George Bilger. His, his poem is called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house not doing much of anything. The boxed set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened. The complete Proust, unread. The French cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. The reflector telescope. I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk in a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them, that by tape six or so they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute, Indiana. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize that I have constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder, <laughs> and I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of, rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table 
where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. <laughs> and, and while the two of them discuss star clusters in Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing a little risotto enjoying a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. Now, just like George, <laughs> what happened? Absolutely nothing happened. Nothing happened except this creation of an identity of someone, which is what happens in that moment that of pleasure, pleasurable thought that goes unnoticed that creates this somebody who has come from the past, who's passing through the present on my way to the future when I, my Vipassana romance gets, gets settled. And that whole process that we call thinking mind, describes a person, the imagined me, that does not exist. It's an imaginary version. It is a view about yourself. The Buddha called this view self-view. He called this I, the me, the mind. The idea that there is someone to whom all of this whole life is happening to. And that, he saw, it was a form of, um, of delusion, of confusion. The tendency to mistake our identity, uh, to fall into a case of mistaken identity, taking that imagined one that plays through our mind to be who and what we are when you all recognize maybe for a moment that what you are on present evidence, what you are here in this room, is not necessarily an I. You can't even call yourself, really in the immediate present, you can't even call yourself a person. That even requires memory. All you can really know in real time is you are, what? Aware. So, the, so when H.W.L. Punja says, find the origin of these I thoughts, I described a little the process of how this world of the imagined me is created. But we all have practiced this creation, this case of mistaken identity from the time we're born. In fact, we're taught to think of ourselves as this and that. We're taught by, you're, you're too smart, you're too short, you're too tall, you're not, a, you're not this. You should be more like this person. We're taught to compare. We're taught to enter what the, what the Buddha later called, he, what he called mana. We just fall into mana, which is the word for conceit or pride, but it's really another name for the comparing mind this tendency of mind to put ourselves above another, to put ourselves below another. You ever do that? Or to put ourselves equal to another. Now that whole process of thinking called the, we call the comparing mind, something that we can, when we are attending to our experience, we can notice, oh, that's the comparing mind we can see that it's just a little thought form. It's a thought bubble. That comparing mind describes somebody who doesn't exist. It describes the imagined you. The imagined you is comparable, is measurable, is either high or low or equal to. The direct experience of yourself, you as you are, not reducible to 
these descriptions. And it is these, these false views of ourselves that bring so much relief, so much uh, pain to us. And they, these views depend on the past and past conditioning. And they depend on our, our worries, our dreams about the imagined future, as Will and I both have been talking about. So Punjaji says, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. Or as the poet Hafez says, what do people who are sad have in common? They have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. And some of you know this already, but I made up my own second verse. What do people who are anxious and worried have in common? They have all built a shrine to the future and often go there and do a strange wail and worry. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to not be, stop being so religious like that. So this process of moving from the narrow world, the narrow, confused, distorted world of our imagined self to the wider gravitational field of presence, of reality, of truth, of awareness, is the process that we're engaged in. So if you take whatever your particular, your particular um, since we all have so much practice from our lives, if you take your particular view, one that I was hearing over the course of the, the days here is I'm feeling stuck. I'm stuck in my life or I'm feeling stuck now or, uh, or I'm... Um, there's often there's, there's something wrong, there's something not quite right, there's something wrong with me. Uh, I'm not, I'm not getting it. I'm, so it's sometime, some form of doubt. Everybody else is getting it. I'm not getting it. We've talked about this. So did anybody have one that kept repeating itself over and over again? Anybody willing to say? Please. Feeling I'm feeling inadequate. So that one... That's a, pretty, that's a pretty heavy load, isn't it? I'm feeling inadequate. And just as Will beautifully described last night, when we land in a view like that, when we take that to be who we are, take that, what I'll call an insult, to be who you are, because looking at you right now, there is absolutely nothing inadequate on present evidence. You are just perfectly yourself here. And that thought, I'm, you're inadequate. What is it referring to? Exactly. You need the past and thought. So what, when he said, it's important to find the origin of this thought, one of the ways we do it is to notice the way that thought comes into the mind and that's the that's the inadequacy thought or the doubting thought, the something's wrong thought. Or we can actually study that thought itself. And in a Dharma talk, we can slow it down a little bit. We can do a little inquiry into this thought. I'm inadequate. I am inadequate. And we'll see what this thought is made of. That when unnoticed, it it we land in a really terrible physical, emotional feeling. We feel diminished. We feel, as soon as I've landed in the identity that I'm inadequate, because it is an identity, all identities, what are identities tethered to? Our, main, our identity is generally tethered to thoughts. Thoughts are pretty insecure, aren't they? They're not, you can't even find them when you look for them. 
But then our main, the main thrust of that identity is, is to our body. Our bodies tend to be pretty insecure too. They're always changing. And then our mood, it's, our identity gets hooked into moods and that inadequate, it definitely produces a mood. And that's always changing. So any kind of identity view, as the Buddha described it, Sakaya Ditti, is fundamentally um, insecure. It's empty. It has no substantiality, it has no reality. And because it's so insecure in all of us, if we have in any way believed some view about ourselves, some version of a self-view, we are, we are basically hanging on, we are relying on quicksand. And because the, that view is so fraught with insecurity, out of love, out of love, you, what does our mind then do? Our mind then says, I want to be adequate. I want to go find adequacy. I'm going to spend as much time as I can finding adequacy. And pretty soon I have constructed a lifetime. I've been born into the life of the inadequate one who's then got to find a way out of inadequacy. And I've got to find all the supportive cast of characters, somebody to love me, someone to enlighten me, someone to fulfill me. And meanwhile, what's happened really? Nothing has happened. Nothing has ever happened. (laughs) I have imagined the whole thing. This is uh, from the Advaita Vedanta teacher Ramana Maharshi, who many people find to be a compelling, he's no longer alive, but very interesting guy. This is his passage called The Lost Necklace. No special, ne- effort, no special effort is necessary to realize a sense of freedom. All efforts are for eliminating the present obscuration from the truth. A lady wearing a necklace around a lady was wearing a necklace around her neck. She forgets it, imagines it to be lost, and impulsively looks for it here, there, and everywhere. Not finding it, she asks her friends if they found it anywhere, until one kind friend points to her neck and tells her to feel the necklace around her neck. The seeker does so and feels happy that the necklace is found. Again, when she meets meets other friends, they ask her if her lost necklace was found. She says yes to them, as if it were lost and later recovered. Her happiness at rediscovering it around her neck is the same as if some lost property was recovered. In fact, she never lost it nor recovered it. And yet she was once miserable and now she's happy. And so that freedom is in plain view, a split second, a half breath away. But because of what the Buddha called avijja or ignorance, or what some have translated as wrong view, we have taken these notions, these ideas that arise in our mind. I'm inadequate. I so appreciate you saying that because we all have some version of it. We've taken that idea and we have uh, entered into a, a little mini incarnation. And we, once you're born into that, into that view about yourself, then you have to live that life out. And it can either be that life of fantasy of meeting the wonderful uh, Italian aria-listening neighbor or it can be how I'm going to get enlightened. But in any case, what it obscures and what we reclaim, what we recover, when we stop and know, to, and know our mind, not just knowing about ourselves, which is all about our thoughts, but knowing ourselves directly, 
it's then we realize the open secret that uh, that freedom waits, but most are involved with trying to find somewhere else. So if we take that thought, let's all do it together, take that thought, I am inadequate. And you can, inwardly, maybe you can do whatever version of that thought that you tend to get caught in, some version of I'm not enough, but we'll use I'm, I'm not adequate. So let's look at that, that thought, I am not in, I am not adequate. So let's just kind of wind it back. If we're going to find the origin, we're going to see from where that arose. So we take that thought, we remove the adequate, and we're left with the feeling of I'm not. Every time I do this, I always feel better when the descriptor is... (laughs) Already feel better after the descriptor is gone. It's so amazing, that descriptor, inadequate, how late, how heavy that is. So we've removed the inadequate and now I'm, I'm not. So let's just keep going. Let's remove the not. And what are we left with? I am. I am. I am doesn't feel so bad. And then just for the sake of, of exploration, let's remove the am. What are we left with? I. That feels pretty, pretty good. So I is ultimately not a problem. I think the biggest problem is when I becomes I'm not enough or I'm too much or I should be, I could be, I would be. But I itself is not a problem. It's a nice descriptor for a sense of being present. I. But for the sake of our inquiry into what's what's at the origin, what's at the root of this, let's just, for a moment, and you can pick it right back up again if it's a little nerve-wracking, just remove the I. And what do you, what's left? What do we, what do we discover again? Anybody willing to say? Relief. Relief. Anything else? Space. Space. Everything. Everything. Free to be anything. anything. Connected. Connected. Non-duality. Non-separateness. Now what did we do? All we did for a moment is see what's just prior to and after our thought of ourselves. This immediate experience that you have, not based on on memory, is much more true than the second-hand version that plays in your mind. So the opportunity in our practice is to see the nature of the thoughts that arise in our mind. And what when we attend to those thoughts, we see that they, are, they share a commonality with everything else about our, our mind and our body. That those thoughts, those I thoughts, I'm inadequate, they arise you know, like little bubbles as in the, I think the Tibetan tradition that's often the metaphors used, like a footprint of a bird in emptiness. It has no substantiality. It arises takes a shape in the mind, and it vanishes. And when it's recognized, that thought is recognized, it reveals itself as just another, in some ways, an aspect of our awareness, not separate from our awareness. It's just arising and being known and passing away. No problem at all. But unnoticed because it often has an unpleasant valence to it, unpleasant, unnoticed, then causes a reaction. Don't like that. That reaction says, I, I need to get away from this. And then that reaction hardens into the search. 
search for what's next. And then pretty soon we are on the wheel of samsara, on the wheel of endlessly waiting for that future that never arrives. And then in that moment, we've just constructed again the future. And we have this odd, uh, unique way uh, of constructing the future as something that is ahead of us. And the past is behind us. And the present right where we are. But, of course, we've already determined that the past doesn't exist. It only exists as memories in the present moment. The future is worries or plans in the present moment. This whole notion of the future in front and the past behind creates this little narrow highway. I've gone from the past, on my way through here, on my way to there. And that we've just entered into a little narrow world of the imagined me. And I, I, whenever I talk about this, I always remember in graduate school we studied this culture that had an exactly opposite um, way of viewing time. The past was in front, because you can see it. Future was behind, because you can't see it. And then present. So it's all made up. It's all made up. So it's essential somewhere in the course of our practice, at least on this level of understanding uh, the, the self-view, the sense of I, me, and mine, it's important to see the difference between that version that plays in your mind and the one, one who sits here, the one who knows, which is not describable which is so much more, as Will was saying so beautifully, it's much, so much more vast, so full of all the qualities of love, of, of, of discernment, of generosity, of patience. All the qualities flow when we can just be as we are, not be busy trying to be somebody else. Because this is what happens. The famous teacher Nagarjuna says, this is what happens when we become someone. And that someone is a kind of story. Blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds and the world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness just as attention, the eye, and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact, that's moment to moment, is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience. I crave to have and to avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling, body which is born, ages, dies, suffers torment, grief, pain, depression, and anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive, but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. So when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, he, just like you, his mind gave rise to doubts, self-doubts. I'm inadequate. Who do I think I am that I can sit here and get enlightened? You've probably all heard the story. He was, he was assaulted by the, the voices in his mind that says, you know, wouldn't it be better to go somewhere else where you could have a little fun? Wouldn't it be better, like you probably imagined, thought, thinking that you would ha- have had a better time if you had a perfect... California day with some, some a little hot tub and a, 
and a massage and a, some kind of connection with your beloved or, your, or that you uh, bought something nice. Or, he had the same things arise in his mind. But because he had practiced, he had developed strength of mind that we've been talking about. Because he, he got his mind into the same location of his body and he stayed there, his mind became quite um, malleable, became quite still and steady. And the more he paid attention to what came into his mind, the brighter his mind got until the point where he collected and sustained so much that his attention, enlivened by the inexhaustible present, by being here, plugged into reality, his mind became so bright that it shined in its clarity. And everything that he noticed was reflected so clearly. He could see, oh yeah, that's what my mind is doing. And he saw something about his mind at that moment. He saw something about his body. He saw that, that these little, I'll just use the, just the portion, we can talk about the body. Uh, what he saw was that the body, everything about the body, in paying attention to it in a very um, continuous way, he saw that the body was in a, con- a continual state of flux. And the more he noticed the, the incessant change of sensation appearing and disappearing and the vibrations and pulsing, and the closer he got, there was nothing that he could find in there. There was no I, there was no me, there was no mind to be found in his body. There was simply sensations being known passing away. And so he started to get a glimpse into the selflessness of the body. And... The, we all understand in a very in a philosophical way that this, as Jack Cornfield often says, this is just a rent-a-body. It arises according to conditions. We ha- it's, it's around for a while, and then it, you know, it, it goes back to where it came. But he saw that in a very intimate way. He saw that this body is selfless. And science has seen the same thing. I thought that I would read this, that uh, it, it's all about the, the human body. Humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every person has a unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile, 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create a permanent brow line. Most people blink about 25 times a minute and 20,000 times a day. Average person speaks about 31,500 words per day. Every breath we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells. Average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit in an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That is from the earth to the sun and back 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. (laughs) This one gets kind of gross. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds per day. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces a new head hair every two to five years. Body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. Body grows new skin once a month. Body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells of your body will die and be replaced with new cells while you listen to this sentence. So in other words, parts of your body are appearing and disappearing. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? So the Buddha had a a deep realization of this. Then, of course, he moved on to 
those voices that were playing in his mind. And at a certain point, he needed to, to touch the earth to, to give him a little strength because those voices are really compelling. They're really, uh, they're hypnotic. I'm, I'm not adequate. And especially when our mind is untrained, we don't notice that we're doing, that, that we're, that in that moment, we all found as Dujim Rinpoche said, he says, after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises, is there not a vivid clarity that has never altered? This is awareness. This is the good news. But he says, isn't it true that a thought suddenly arises like I'm inadequate? Now, if that thought's noticed, it's just another aspect of awareness. But if that goes unnoticed, he says, that's talk, that thought spreads out into ordinary thinking. This he calls the chain of delusion. We actually start to incarnate in that little dreamscape of I'm inadequate. We do this many, many times a day. And that's why we tend to, when we have an untrained hearts and minds, we tend to be so exhausted. We're having to go through this profound drama of the imagined me trying to get to the imagined future and we end up spinning our wheels. Again, nothing ever happened. We've only ever been right here. So at a certain point he saw with the same kind of clarity that the thoughts that were arising in his mind that unnoticed seemed so convincing, but noticed they showed themselves to be absolutely empty, appearing, disappearing, unsat- unreliable, as you could not hang on any thought, and it, it just seemed to come and go by itself that it was marked by selflessness. It was just coming and going. It described a phantom. It was like a bubble, like a dream, like a cloud passing through an empty sky. Our thoughts have no more reality than that. And it's not to say that we shouldn't think. Thinking is a wonderful thing, and we have very wonderful creative thoughts. We have thoughts that made this building here, that brought you to this retreat. But part of our practice is, this, is a practice of, of discernment, of intelligent discernment of the kinds of thoughts that we're having. Which ones are useful? Which ones are, which ones are just approximations of reality? Which ones are just insulting? And it turns out that the most, most of our thoughts are pretty much creating a picture of us as very small and inadequate. Creating an image of ourselves in this big world the big world that we create that scares us so much is really just in our mind. Buddha shared a, a simple rendition of the Four Noble Truths where he said, With, within this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense lies the world. So without this body, no world. But lies the cause of the world. The, the world that we create in our mind, that phantasmagorical drama that gets created, all happens right here in this fathom-long body. Also within this fathom-long body lies the end of the world, the world, the world that we imagine. And, it li- and lies within this body lies the path to the end of the world. Again, when I say the end of the world, I don't mean doomsday. I mean the end of the imagined you who is um, the imagined sufferer. So the more the Buddha saw that these ideas of oneself were not self, that they were rising, changing, passing away, unreliable as a place to hang your hat, empty of self, the more he noticed that, the happier he got. And the happier you get when you make that shift from being just caught up in your drama to noticing it. And that it's the promise of your own moment-to-moment awakening. Whatever you can notice becomes workable, becomes something that you can work with. 
So even though it may be, you may see, feel the residue of having had that thought, I'm, I'm inadequate, and you feel the way it affects your body, to be able to notice that can also allow you to notice how that feeling and that thought come, they come and they go. So at a certain point, the Buddha realized, well, I'm not that one that I'm imagining myself to be. And everything that I pay attention to seems to be marked by these characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, because anything that changes, I can't hang my hat on, I can't find any lasting happiness in. And everything that I pay attention to seems to reveal that it's marked by selflessness. It's just happening. It's, it's, it's what's called anatta, not in control. It's just, it's, it's just operating according to, to, as Will talked about last night, causes and conditions, just things happening. Then if, if, I'm, not, if, that's, if I'm not that, well, who and what am I? But interestingly enough, as the, as the Buddha's mind stopped clinging to those ideas, stopped pushing away the unpleasant ones, stopped grabbing onto the pleasant ones, he opened that tight fist of grasping. There was space there, open and inviting and comfortable. And in a flash of insight, he realized that the very freedom, ease, naturalness that he had been searching for, that you are searching for, is none other than the nature of your own mind, here and now. And at first he didn't think anybody could get it because it was, it was uh, too close. And as the Tibetans say, it's too vast, too wondrous, and too easy. We simply need to be awake. Come out of the tangle of fear, thinking, and live in silence. As Rumi puts it, flow down and down in ever-widening rings of being. But once he saw that, um, as the story goes, that there were those with just a little bit of dust on their eyes who could be pointed, he then started to uh, he started his ministry. He started his 45 years of teaching. And what did he tell people to do? He said, uh, see this. There is, uh, it's stressful to keep going around that wheel. And what keeps you going around that wheel of endless searching is that tendency to want to be somebody, to get somewhere, to be other than you are. And that, and that needs to be released. You need to see that for what it is. But there's an end. And th- you can realize this. And there's a path. And this is what we are steadying our attention. We are arousing our energy. We are brightening our minds so that we can see for ourselves that we live, as Kala Rinpoche puts it, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. That there is a reality and that you are that reality. And if you understand this, you'll see that you are nothing that can be described. And being nothing, as someone said earlier, you are everything. That's all. Both both including your unique individual expression and connected to all of life, all at once. 
Or as Sri Nisargadatta puts it, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between these two, my life flows. So our thinking mind is very clever. So it's really important that you are um, merciful, forgiving, and have a sense of humor about how absolutely our mind will take anything and build a personality view with it. It will take, it will create an identity around even the most impersonal things. When your mind gets quiet and you feel it's empty, all of a sudden it become, your emptiness becomes better than somebody else's. <laughs> or I just want to leave you with one example of the limits to which our, we can create identity views. This was from, this was about a musical group called The Planets who introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album. And representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage, who once wrote 4 hours 33 minutes, which, is two, which had in it 273 seconds of silence, threatened to sue the group for ripping Cage off but failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 (laughs) seconds it thought had been pilfered. Said Mike Batt of the Planets, mine is a much better silent piece. (laughs) I am able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. So try to laugh at the way, the way that, you're, that you take an experience or when you, as my friend James used to say, when he would see people do, watching him do walking meditation, he would notice his body would perk up and he started using a mental note for whenever he would notice that and he would say, lifting, moving, placing, looking good, lifting, <laughs> moving. <laughs> So try to enjoy the, the self-view. But then, just leaving you on a serious note, the Buddha, after he realized that freedom, he, he let out a song, as often people who awaken let out songs. And I'll leave you with this song. He said, through many births, each time, through many births in the wandering on, I ran, seeking but not finding the maker of this house. O house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Dukkha is birth again and again. Dukkha, suffering. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken now. Your ridgepole destroyed. That's the defilements, the confusion in our mind. The ridgepole is ignorance. The mind has gone to the unconditioned. To craving cessation it has come. So each of us has to, the invitation and the possibilities, each of us can say, I've, I've seen that, that is, that's an illusion. You, you're not going to fool me anymore. You're not going to believe that, that little narrative about an imagined me. That life, that's one less life you have to live if you can notice those thoughts as opposed to identify with them and, and say, this is me, this is mine. So again and again, we, we break the ridgepole, we knock down the rafters by seeing that thought is not self, it's not me. That sensation is not self. That mood is a changing condition like the weather. Not me, not mine, this I am not. O house builder, you've been seen, you shall not build a house. Mind gone to the unconditioned. To craving cessation, it has come. So let's just rest in the unconditioned for a moment. That simply means be aware. It has no beginning, it has no end. 
No height, no color, no shape, no inside, no outside. It's free, as we've been saying. So be free. May all beings learn how to feast on their life just as it is. May all beings be free. Thank you for your long enduring attention. We have just a little less than a half hour for walking and then we will um, sit again with a little chanting. So please continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.